Thanks for joining us on The Debtor's Advocate, where Nick and Harmon break down debt. Today, we're talking bankruptcy. I declare bankruptcy. No, no, Harmon, that's, that's <laughs> no? not how it works. Sorry. Sorry, Michael Scott took over me there. <laughs> We're going to have to find another way. We're going to explain to people how you file for bankruptcy. All right, so we'll tell you the actual answer, how you file for bankruptcy and what it holds. <laughs> so when you make an assignment into bankruptcy, what we're dealing with is, so you hear the word a lot. You know, I mean, it gets thrown around any time somebody's insolvent. Typically, the first default is bankruptcy. But it is typically the last resort. So even as licensed solvency trustees, pretty much anytime you're gonna go see a licensed solvency trustee firm, we're gonna be able to tell you that bankruptcy is usually a last resort because we do try to find the alternatives if possible that may work better for, for your situation. Um, but it will come down sometimes it does turn out to be the best option for you because primarily what you're essentially doing is when you file for an assignment into bankruptcy, you're essentially submitting and putting everything on the table. So you're disclosing everything to the trustee and in turn, you're getting protection from your creditors. So there is a legal stay of proceedings that gets put in place, which protects you from your creditors. So essentially, you know, if you're getting those collection calls, you're getting garnishes on your wages, things like that. So what a bankruptcy does is that once that gets put into effect, it helps you deal with those. So essentially puts an end to collection activities. Yeah, I kind of equate a stay of proceedings as like a giant brick wall between you and your creditors, okay? So the trustee is gonna put up this giant wall legally and then they sit on top of the wall and uh, it stops the creditors from coming through to you so they can't collect from you, they can't call you, they can't garnish you. Um, and it kind of stops all the creditors in their tracks and lines them up so that they can equally share in anything that might come out of your bankruptcy. So think about it like your creditors are in a race to see who can get your money first. Um, this way it stops all those creditors and lines them up equally so that they all get paid the exact amount or they're, they're essentially treated equally, like children. They, they tell us, you have to love all your children equally. We have to love all of our creditors equally. That's how they work. <laughs> and what a lot of uh, times you may not know is that your creditors can also put you in bankruptcy. But a lot of the times, voluntary bankruptcy is the route to go because you're able to take action before that occurs. Because it's, uh, you know, that way you're controlling the process and making this decision to deal with your finances, any of the debts, problems that you're dealing with. But uh, we do want to say that generally your creditors do have a right to put you in bankruptcy, believe it or not. But it's why we say bankruptcy is a last resort because once a bankruptcy is filed, it cannot be reversed. So we yeah. can't opt out of it at it's one point if you change your mind. Like a marriage. You cannot get out of it. Once you are tied to that trustee, you and that trustee are in it for the long haul. Yeah. You can't switch trustees. You can't withdraw bankruptcy. You can't be like, oh, sorry, my bad. I didn't want to do this. Once you sign the papers and they get filed with the regulator, you got to finish out this marathon. There is no divorcing your trustee. <laughs> yes. We're in it for the long run. Yes. Yeah, so choose your trustees wisely. <laughs> So when we think about bankruptcy, a lot of the times um, I've heard from people, they're like, oh, well, I'll just declare bankruptcy and then I get to walk away from my debts. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. If that was how it worked, everybody would do it. Um, what happens is 
the trustee steps into your shoes. They essentially become you as far as your creditors are concerned and as far as your debts and your assets are concerned. So you could owe $100,000 or you could owe a million dollars. A bankruptcy is not based on the total amount of debt that you owe. It's based on two very important pieces. One piece of that puzzle is your assets and the second piece of that puzzle is your income. Those are the two things. When you boil down a bankruptcy, what is it all about? And keep in mind, you know, the uh, essentially the point of bankruptcy is not to strip you of all assets and kind of put you out on the street. So there are legal protections for that. They're called exemptions. So there's personal exemptions on certain assets that you're allowed to keep even in a bankruptcy. So it's a common thing because that's one of the first things that comes up if you own a house. The first question is Am I going to automatically lose my house? I got a car. I want to keep my car. Are they going to take my car? So all these are valid, genuine questions that require answers to. Because as we mentioned, uh, you may read on the internet that, you know, you don't want to file for bankruptcy because you're going to lose all of your assets. But that's not how it works. So we're here to debunk that myth as well. So we're here to tell you about information on how those exemptions work and what's required and how we apply those in each case-to-case scenarios where you're able to retain certain assets and still work out a genuine plan with your creditors to deal with your financial situation. Yeah, so let's look at let's look at the house and car first because that's usually the first one. I always hear about it. Am I going to lose my car? Obviously, we all need our vehicles to get to and from work unless you take public transit. So What'll happen is you'll have a particular asset. We'll use a car, for example. So you've got a vehicle and it's worth $15,000. You might have a secured loan on that. So let me clarify what a secured creditor is. A secured creditor is like a car loan, a mortgage. You've essentially promised this particular good for that item. So when you go in and buy a car and you get a car loan, if you don't pay your car loan, guess what, Harmon? They're going to come take your car. That's what happens, right? Yeah. Same with your mortgage. You don't pay your mortgage, they're going to foreclose on your house. So that secured creditor gets a special ranking. They come first. So you have a $15,000 vehicle and you've got a loan outstanding on it for $10,000. Well, now really the only equity that you have in that car is about $5,000, right? If you were to sell it today for $15,000, you got to pay out that secured creditor for $10,000. So you have $5,000 worth of equity. That's what the trustee is going to look at is that $5,000 worth of equity. Now, each province has exemptions because as Harmon said, we don't want people to be like homeless or destitute. We don't want to take all of their possessions when they're filing for bankruptcy. The, each province sets up certain things and says, you can't take this amount of equity out of somebody's home or this amount of equity out of somebody's car. So in Alberta, what happens is you get a $5,000 worth of equity as an exemption on a vehicle. So now you've got this $15,000 car with a $10,000 loan plus your $5,000 exemption. Your vehicle in the eyes of the trustee has no value to the trustee, i.e. to the creditors. Creditors aren't going to get anything out of that car. So as long as you continue to make your car payments, you get to keep that car. Yes. So that's applicable to one car. So if, you know, uh, another example, you own a car that's worth $4,000, no loans, no secured creditors attached to it, it's free and clear, your vehicle, even if you file for bankruptcy, it's less than $5,000 in value, as you mentioned, if it's worth $4,000, it is fully exempt, meaning you do not have to worry about your creditors taking 
that vehicle away from you, even in a bankruptcy. Yeah, houses are another big one. So in Alberta, currently, each primary residence, so the one that you're living in right now, you get $40,000 as an exemption over and above your mortgage of equity in that home. So a lot of people, their houses are exempt. Again, I will reiterate, you have to keep paying the loans on those particular items. I have had a couple clients call and say, I would like to file for bankruptcy out of my mortgage and my car payment, but I would like to keep those things. <laughs> but that doesn't happen. Again, if that was the case, we would all do it. <laughs> they will take back their stuff. Yes. So keep in mind, so with the house, though, as of today's date, that exemption in Alberta is about $40,000 per household. So that's a total of $40,000 of equity that you can retain in your house. And you don't have to worry about your, your unsecured creditors, you know, in a bankruptcy, taking that asset away from you. One of those questions that often comes up, so meaning that if you got a house, for example, let's say it's, assume you got a mortgage on a house for $300,000 that's attached to your primary residence and your property is worth $320,000, for example. Now, since the equity in the property is less than $40,000, if you wish to retain your house and keep making payments on it, you have every right to do so because in a bankruptcy, you are not required to give that up. There's no non-exempt equity portion that you need to be concerned about when it comes to filing for bankruptcy in that scenario. Yeah, so there's a couple of other exemptions too that people need to take into consideration. Again, this changes from province to province. So if you're listening from another province like Ontario or BC, all of these exemptions that we're talking about that Harmon and I are talking about are completely different. Um, Alberta tends to have higher exemptions than other provinces. So your province may have something a little bit different. It's good to talk to a trustee in that area to find out what those exemptions are because they're provincially regulated. So we've got $10,000 of tools of the trade. Now a tool of the trade is actually a tool that you use in your profession to make an income, right? So my husband's a welder, all of his welding tools would be exempt, but his woodworking tools, for example, would not necessarily be exempt because he doesn't do woodworking, he just does welding. Um, you're allowed a $4,000 exemption in furniture and appliances. This is if you were to sell your furniture and appliances, what the value is, not your replacement value if you were to get an insurance, like if you were to ask your insurance company, how much do I need to replace all my furniture and appliances? This is like the secondhand value. Uh, $4,000 in your personal effects, as well as all RRSPs and RESPs are exempt. Most pensions as well are exempt and life insurance policies depending on who the beneficiary is. So those are really the big assets that we find that people have questions about. TFSAs are not exempt, as well as like cash on hand. So if you got like a buyout from an employer through all of this COVID stuff or possibly from an oil and gas buyout that you might have had a couple years back and you have money just sitting in a bank account as a liquid asset, that would not be exempt. So the trustee would look at that and say, okay, you have $10,000 worth of cash in a TFSA that now needs to come into your estate to pay back your creditors. I kind of think about an estate as like just a bucket or a bag of where all the things go and then that pie or that bucket gets divvied up to pay back the creditors with. So any non-exempt equity or any non-exempt assets will go into your estate to pay your creditors. Yes, and let's say one of the other rare things in Alberta as Nicole has been talking about the exemptions here, is that, the, yeah, the all, all RRSPs are exempt. 
So um, it's one of those snares, it's for your future savings. So if you got RSPs, no, you will not lose them in a bankruptcy. You do not have to worry about that. Another one of those things, so that's why we mentioned that Alberta does have one of the highest amounts for these uh, exemptions because they're provincially based. So they're based out of a provincial act that you get these protections for certain assets. And there's, for bankruptcies, mainly the other common thing that we want to lead into here, Nick, is I'm sure, you know, we get this on a daily basis. So how long do I stay in bankruptcy? Am I in bankruptcy for seven years? So it's a common misconception how it affects your credit and how long somebody's in bankruptcy for are very two different things that do not correspond to the same time period. So the time periods are different. So essentially, you could be a first time bankrupt, second time bankrupt, and believe it or not, you can also have multiple bankruptcy filings over the course of your life. Hasn't so, Donald Trump filed for bankruptcy seven times, Harmon? I am not sure, but that is something that would require fact-checking, Nicole. <laughs> I think his corporations have. Something that I'm have. sure our listeners can look into. Uh, but yes, so you can file for multiple bankruptcies, but it does change how long you're required to report for and how long you're in the bankruptcy for. So the time periods do change. So generally it gets longer over the course as you file more bankruptcies essentially so the first time is supposed to be the easiest right so you could be done as early as nine months and why we say you can be done in nine months is because it's not applicable to every case it depends on your income so right that second piece of the puzzle so let's talk about that second piece of the puzzle yes so as we mentioned earlier that there's two primary parts that come into play when it comes to bankruptcy your assets and your income so the second piece of the puzzle here is your income so what are you taking home what do you make per month every you know after your taxes are paid what are you taking home so based on that is how your the length of your bankruptcy is determined so First time bankruptcy without a surplus income, which we'll get to and we'll explain in our coming up second episode, uh, we're gonna be breaking down how surplus income is calculated and what the superintendent standard is and how it's calculated based on these factors. And we're gonna be breaking that down for you. But for this podcast, we're gonna wrap it up for you here that essentially surplus income is calculated um, on a, essentially by the trustee when you report your income and expenses to us over the course of the bankruptcy. And in a first time bankruptcy, you could be discharged as early as nine months, or it can be extended and can go on for 21 months. That's where somebody has surplus income. And a second time bankruptcy is standard minimum for 24 months. So it's a longer period of time. You're looking at two years period, or it can go on for 36 months in a surplus scenario. So you're looking at three years. So an additional 12 months get added when you're in surplus scenario. Bankruptcies past the two term marks where you're filing for bankruptcy for a third or any point beyond that, there is no automatic discharge. So that is essentially there's no time period fixed to that occurrence where you're essentially eligible for an automatic discharge at you know a fixed time period once you've completed your duties. So that is a pending factor generally over the course. Right. So what Harm is talking about is how I said that essentially you're running a marathon with your trustee. It's how long is your marathon going to last and the finish line is your discharge. So the start line is when you sign the papers and you can't stop this race, whether you're crawling all the way through or not. And the end line, the finish line is that discharge. And it could be anywhere either 9, 21, 24 or 36, depending on your 
particular situation. So I always like to tell my clients, when you're in this marathon race with us, right, there are a lot of things that you need to do and you need to get them completed so that you can finish the race. We're going to have another podcast uh, shortly after this one, bankruptcy part two. So now that you know that we're in a marathon together and we're going to be getting through, we're going to talk a lot more in depth about that surplus income calculation and what it looks like. And we're going to talk about how to get out of bankruptcy and what do you do once you're out of bankruptcy? Yes. So essentially going forward, stay tuned because we're going to be talking about, as Nick has mentioned, about the duties and how surplus income is calculated. We want to thank you for tuning in again. As we mentioned, we're in it for the long run. Stay on this marathon with us. Please subscribe our channel. And for any um, questions, concerns, feedback, please reach out to us so we can stay informed. And if you require help with dealing with your financial situation, your debts, reach out to a licensed OMC trustee nearest to your area. You can give us a call at 403-232-6220 and we'll be more than happy to help you. And it's been a pleasure to bring this podcast to you and we will tune in next week with part two of bankruptcy once again. Thank you for tuning in to Debtors Advocate, where Nick and Harmon break down your debts. Be awesome, everybody.